episode number 20. Welcome to it. It is Friday the 24th of May 2013. Winter has hit Sydney, Australia. It is a very um, unwarm outside. And welcome to the It's a Monkey podcast. We have a terrific show lined up for you. 99 Designs, I'm sure, is a site that many of you have heard of. If you've used 99designs before, you may be interested to know that we're going to be chatting to one of the co-founders, Matt Mitchkovich, who will be on the show a little bit later. We'll be talking to him about his new startup as well as about his, his, his experience with 99designs, and he's a really great entrepreneur. But uh, as always, let's get straight into the tech news. And with me, as usual, is James Peter. James, you've had a fun week. Yeah, it's been a pretty busy week. We've launched the uh, the new Manage Flitter business plans, which has been good. And I think we're pretty good. We don't really do a lot of hard selling on this show. We don't. We're not opportunistic about our listeners. But I think we uh, can mention that we've launched Manage Flitter business, which is a great new version of our, our one of our flagship products or our flagship products, Manage Flitter business. And as lead dev, um, you've had a busy week. Yeah, yeah. Seem the launch went mostly smoothly. We had a few few teething issues as always, but um, yeah, no, it's running running pretty pretty well. We had a bit of an issue with Twitter this morning going down, which was bad timing as always. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's it's been going well. Got a got a few people signed up and using it, which is good. It so is getting some positive reactions. It is good. The buzz of um, building stuff and switching it on and seeing it come to life never really gets old, does it? No, no. It's always the always the best part when you finally get to turn, turn the switch. And Marissa texted me this morning and she's quite <laughs> quite happy with our progress and um, yeah, she's she, got a couple of checks left in her checkbook. She's got two billion to, <laughs> to throw around. <laughs> Speaking of Marissa, of course, the big story this week, the huge story is that Yahoo buys Tumblr and promises, quote unquote, not to screw it up. Yeah, that was uh, it. Was quite a quite a good press release they put together. Like actually saying, you know, we're not going to screw up the 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 purchase of the company. Um, but I guess they need to do that because I guess people are probably a little bit worried about the the acquisition and um, and what could potentially happen to Tumblr. Yeah, well, look, I think historically Yahoo hasn't really made a huge success over many acquisitions. Um, I mean, Flickr's probably one of their most successful acquisitions that I can think of at the top of my head. I mean, obviously, these companies have a lot of different acquisitions that that are lower profile and related to all different, you know, back-end tech and things like that. But in terms of profile acquisitions being successful, Flickr... Mm-hmm. Um, they just released the, uh, the new design for Flickr as well um, this week, which actually looks really good. Looks good, and I think it's what one terabyte included storage. Mm, it's impressive, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty good, pretty good offering there, and it's one of the few, it's one of the few sort of freemium mass market web services that are still around. Like, there's very few sort of mass consumer, you know, pay pay for upgrade. I think it was one of the early sort of um, pioneers in that front, and it's still doing well. So yeah, it's a good sign. I think um, there was a lot of discussion about GeoCities. Mm. when this whole Tumblr thing broke. Now, if some of if you listen to the show and you're probably younger than, I don't know, 25, you probably haven't heard of GeoCities. But GeoCities was this, it was a site where you could, where you could upload a, f- a website for free and have a, a domain such as geocities.com forward slash something or other. And Yahoo bought that. I think it was for, it was more than Tumblr. I think they bought it for 2 billion or somewhere around that. It was ca- crazy. There was cash and stock though. And um, they started charging for it, 
and it went downhill very quickly. And I, they mothballed it, I think, in 2007, although apparently it still exists in Japan. GeoCity still exists in Japan for some reason. The uh, the first websites ever made actually I put on GeoCities. Okay. It was very my very very early days of the internet. It was uh, it was the first place I think I ever published anything online. So yeah, I've got some some fond memories before I could even afford to buy a domain name because I think they were actually fairly expensive back then. I think like hundred bucks or something a month or a year or a year. I think. Well, I think I was like sixteen at the time. It was hundred bucks a year is yeah. expensive then. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, and it was it was it was good because you didn't have to pay for hosting and you got the domain name. I mean, now that stuff is you know you get that get the whole package for like you know ten bucks. So yeah, when crazy. when I used to lecture at uni and teach teach the kids how to build websites, we used to use GeoCities and get them mm-hmm. to upload GeoCities. I think I think a lot of people today don't have a sense. You know, you know obviously as technology becomes assimilated, we start taking it for granted, but. You know, when the internet was new, putting your first website up was was a bit of a buzz, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was always uh, always quite exciting. I mean, things have evolved so much these days; it's so much easier to publish and put content online. But um, yeah, no, there's always going to be a fond fond memory of that kind of content. And it's pity that Yahoo couldn't do something better with it. I mean, I could imagine that the web could have evolved quite differently if things had gone down the self-publishing route as opposed to sort of the Facebook and social networking route. I mean, I guess it's just because those were the easier easier routes. That's why things ended up that way. But Did Yahoo ever have a social media property? Uh, not that I know of. I know Yahoo Mail was very popular. They had Yahoo Messenger that was very popular at one stage. But I hmm. don't know if they've actually had any social media play up until now yeah no i don't think i don't think they do have any social networks no yeah that's a good, good point yeah first time into i mean i guess tumble is a social network and it's a published oh, yeah absolutely network but yeah absolutely and the, but the interesting thing is marissa mayer in a way um was partly i wouldn't say responsible but she was involved in the fact that orchid which was google's social media play Mm. Um, didn't succeed as well. And she's on record. I was at the TechCrunch where someone asked her what happened to Orchid and she actually said, we didn't scale it properly. There was oh, a, okay. It was actually... Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. It was actually a tech issue. So mm. I'm sure she's very much learned from her mistakes. Yeah. And um, she's... Would hope so. Yeah, look, and um, I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's really an interesting story to follow from a business perspective. They have about 300 million monthly uniques. Um, we've got about... 300,000 monthly uniques. So we've got a little bit of a way to go. 400,000, I think. 400,000 <laughs> monthly uniques on Managed Flutter. 120,000 signups every day. Um, but of course, they, they had taken quite a lot of cash already. I think about 125 million in investments and only mm. turning over about 13 million at this stage. So I'm pretty sure their board pushed them on this one to accept this offer. Um, and I don't know if David Karp, who's the founder, was a really interesting guy to to read about. Um, don't know if it's his, if it was his first choice to actually get acquired like this. I'm sure his bank balance likes it, but from a philosophical point of view, yeah, it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting that um, that he did go down the acquisition route. I mean, it's 
it's hard to know. It's hard to understand why. I mean, I guess it's because he did want to leverage the resources of Yahoo and have to and not have to worry about customer support and all the technical challenges and scaling, all that kind of stuff. And Yahoo can provide all of that benefit. So I guess there's that that element that uh, that does potentially benefit uh, Tumblr in the long run. And I guess he can focus on just building the product, just building Tumblr. So maybe maybe it's freeing in some way for him. Yeah, maybe, but. Um you know, entrepreneurs generally, generally sort of, that's that's sort of not really the type of freedom they're looking for. Generally, I think he's quite unique. I mean, if you read read a bit about his stuff, like I think he's very much, he's almost product without any kind of sense of business in there. Like, I mean, the whole reason why, well, not reason, but one of the factors as to why Tumblr hasn't really focused on any kind of monetization, it's just gone down the funding route, was because. You know, he didn't really want to build it into like a business per se. He just wanted to make it the best product possible. But that's exactly what Zuckerberg, I mean, it's the exact same story. True, true. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, he, even he had the confidence slash arrogance in their listing documents to say, can't remember the exact wordings, was something like business profit is secondary. I can't, I can't remember his exact words, but mm-hmm. he, he, he was quite upfront about building the right product and everything else will follow. Yep. Yep. Type, type stories. So um, it's interesting now that East Coast and the West Coast are bookmarked by these two young guys that have um, you know, built up these, these businesses for, for squillions. Both are coming from these sort of middle upper class families on the East Coast. Yep. So uh, from an anthropological perspective, quite interesting. But um, I'm not a frequent Tumblr user. I just, my headspace for social media just seems to be maxed out. I'd like to, I'd, I'd really like to get into it, but I read, a, I read an interesting article why teens, um, I think I sent it to you, why teens are particularly fascinated with Tumblr written by a teen, because of course that's their real hot market, the sort of 16 to 24 year olds. And they made, so this teen made an interesting comment that Facebook is very, bounded and tied by your identity there's always seems to be these dramas on facebook whereas tumblr you can sort of be decoupled from your identity hmm yeah it's interesting interesting point of view i can i can say that yeah and it's a it's a it's a much more anonymous you can make your interest or your artistic flair being more of the sort of the gist of what it's about as opposed to facebook where the starting point is you who you are your context your family your history so it was quite interesting because apparently the teens are really, a lot of them are seriously into Tumblr. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I can see that you can kind of build your own identity on Tumblr, you know, sort of tie it into your, into your past or any, any of the other baggage. You can just, you know, be somebody new. I guess that's the appeal of it. And that was part of the history and the success of the internet in the early days where no yeah, one, definitely. no one would reveal their real name and real history and real identity. And I remember when Facebook started getting traction, I, I used to find it quite awkward that people were just so comfortable just laying everything out there because I came from the culture where the internet was a, was a semi sort of opaque world mm. where you didn't really reveal yourself for whatever reason and people sort of enjoyed that. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, that's uh, Tumblr. What else do we have going on? Twitter um, finally launched two-factor authentication yeah, they did. Um, so obviously, two-factor authentication is um, when you log in, you have to uh, you you 
let me start again. So in order to use two-factor authentication, you have to put in your phone number into Twitter um, and activate it. And then whenever you log into Twitter, you'll be sent an SMS, um, much like you would with any uh, tweet notifications through SMS. And then you just put it into a box and you log in. Um, and it's a much more secure way of logging into websites. It's a very, essentially for a hacker to compromise your account, they have to have access to your phone and your password, which is which is near impossible. So f particularly for brands and big businesses having large accounts, um, I'm sure this will help to reduce the, the incidence of takeovers of accounts. Of course, they've suffered pretty badly lately with all sorts of accounts being hacked into. So uh, no doubt Dick Costello, the, the CEO, just said, look, we, we've got to get this one out. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit, uh, the way they've implemented two-factor auth, I mean, to um, to complain a little bit, uh, they've basically just gone down the phone route. So the only way to do it is you have to have a phone uh, that you have access to. So if you had, like, a lot of people using one account, like, it doesn't, like how are you going to manage that? It can only be tied to one person's phone. Um, and there are already quite a, quite a few solutions out there to solve this problem. Like there's the Google authenticator and there's other apps out there which can sort of let multiple people manage two-factor auth so it's a very simple approach but hopefully they'll keep working on it and they'll get something a bit better doesn't google authenticator that isn't that also tied in with the phone it's an app on your phone yeah it is but i'm pretty sure that you can add multiple people to it so i think you can have any number of people right um tied so in with the same yeah with account. the same like they can have their own phones and they can add their own authentication and i'm pretty sure it's just like a one phone number um thing because it's the other way around because obviously if you're using a phone an sms you have to get the message sent to it whereas if you've got something like an app on your phone which is generating the code then anybody can have that app generating the code um does um has this been rolled out globally uh as far as on twitter as far as i know yeah Things are moving pretty fast at Twitter, which is great. They've they've uh, cranked up some of their self-serve ad solutions as well, only in the US at the moment. Mm. But um, they, I think their IPO is probably going to happen quicker than people think. You know, there mm, seems to just so. be, all, all the pieces seem to be falling into place a, mm. a bit. What are their revenue numbers like? They're, they're pretty big. Bit, they? yeah. yeah, they're pretty big. Mm. Um, yeah. Could be around the corner. And I would imagine it's if they learn from Facebook's mistake, I mean, Facebook was essentially forced to list because of the number of private shareholders and, and they had already um, enjoyed a large percentage of their um, revenue growth. Mm -hmm. And if Twitter has learned from that to list, that, that's what the market likes is, is the growth. You know, mm -hmm. listing yeah. as a mature company or mature revenue company is a lot harder. So if the, if yeah. the revenue is growing, um, Man, I, I sound like such an expert, don't I? Should have your own uh, have your own stock stock investment tech investment I, I'm podcast. Just, I'm just you know I've <laughs> I've got I've got it all sorted. You know we we, we know what's going on here. Um, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast episode twenty. Um, we've almost got a day's worth of content. If someone really wants to have a podcast-a-thon, they can sit for like probably nearly 24 hours and actually just listen to us for mm. a day. Hopefully their ears won't start bleeding <laughs> by the end of it. But I don't, I don't even think I could do that <laughs> with, without going mad. Um, but yeah, you could queue it up on iTunes and, and um, maybe create, create a drinking game. Every time we mention the word Twitter, have a, have a shot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, if you enjoy listening to us, please tweet us, please like us on Facebook, 
please send us an email. Please rate us on iTunes. Um, if you subscribed on iTunes, and if you're not subscribed, please subscribe on iTunes and rate us. Rating us on iTunes help us, helps us get higher up the rankings. And obviously, we want to keep on doing these podcasts for you. And the higher profile our podcast gets, the more interesting and higher profile gets. Like Matt, we can get like Matt Mitchkovich, which is you know, which we know you enjoy listening to. So um, help us keep it. Help us keep it going. Thanks for all the support today. So we're going to take a small break and we're going to come back with our interview with Matt Mitchkovich, co-founder of um, 99designs. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the co-founder of 89N, home of products such as Manage Flitter and CheckDog. Thanks for joining us. Um, now, many of you have probably used a, a website called 99designs, have heard of a website called Flipper, and maybe even going back a little bit uh, further, used a site called SitePoint. Well, I'm happy to say I uh, have at the end of the line someone who is the co-founder of um, most of these sites, or actually all of these sites, I should say. Um, Ma uh, Matt Mitchkovich, who um, is the co-founder of 99designs, Flipper, Flipper SitePoint, and now the CEO of Developer Auction. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Matt, let's start a little bit. I mean, I think, I think what people probably don't realize is even though you've got uh, a pretty impressive resume already, um, you're not even 30, is that correct? Uh, turning 30 this year. Wow. So, so, you, so you can no longer make those, uh, you know, uh, great CEOs under 30 lists. Yeah, thankfully I managed to get onto most of them before uh, <laughs> before uh, time ran out. But it's still uh, the Fortune 40 under 40, I think, which would be a really impressive list to get onto. So give us a little bit. I mean, I think 99designs is probably the site that most people are familiar with. And of course, it's, the, it's one of the poster boys of Australian startup companies that have you know, made a dent in, and disrupted a market. How did you get involved in that site? So 99designs was actually spun out of SitePoint. Um, SitePoint is the original business that I started at age 14. It's a large online magazine for web developers and web designers. And a really interesting thing starts to happen when you aggregate a large number of people in a similar industry together, and that's you want to start doing business with each other. So 99design is one of these business activities that organically evolved on SitePoint that we later spun off as a separate business. And, um, I mean, did you, did you at the time know that it was, you were really sort of disrupting a market and, and there, was, there was something special about it happen? Or was it just more of just a, something that evolved as a surprise, uh, the, the success surprised you somewhat? I wish I could say I came up with the idea, but uh, it was really an organic thing. And the success of the crowdsourcing graphic design concept so, uh, took us a little bit by surprise. But I think we were really hitting on an 
important underlying current, which is that uh, designers are fantastic at designing. They're not necessarily great salespeople. They're not marketers. They're not able to always present themselves in the most effective way possible. So there's a lot of really talented people that don't have access to opportunities and don't have access to clients, don't have access to jobs. Um, and 99designs essentially solved that problem for them, um, going on to even you know, collect all their money up front from clients and pay it out so that designers you know, can focus what they're best at rather than doing all these business tasks and activities. I mean, we really, really love 99designs. It solves a lot of problems from the business point of view in terms of, um, you know, um, working with one freelancer can be, can be problematic and um, it just really solves, as a small business, just gaining access and, and, and sort of still rewarding the right people, etc. So it's really, it's helped us as a startup be a lot more efficient, efficient in things like logo designs and site designs, etc. So um, we are a fan. But what is your daily um, involvement with 99designs? You, you're involved with the new project um, at the moment. Um, so are you still involved on a day-to-day basis? No, I actually left 99designs at the end of April last year to focus on developer auction and creating a marketplace for recruiting software engineers um, full-time in Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, and other major North American markets. Um, It's a complaint I'd heard about often when chatting with other founders and CEOs. Everybody was having a lot of trouble finding fantastic talent. Everyone was stuck paying ridiculous fees to recruitment agencies who often provided subpar or at the very least highly inconsistent service. So that struck me as a massive opportunity waiting to be solved uh, through a marketplace model. I mean, it's interesting when you were describing the freelancers on 99designs, you actually, in my view, could have been describing developers to some degree where they're really, really good at what they do. They don't tend to be good salespeople, don't tend to understand how to package themselves up and market themselves up. Similar type of, similar type of challenges for developers? Um, it's actually different. For developers in Silicon Valley in New York, the problem is too much opportunities. The average developer in San Francisco gets 5 to 15 recruitment emails per day. So wow. they spend 15 minutes on the phone talking to every recruiter. That would suck up a significant portion of their time in their day. Um, so with developer auction, we sort of flip the funnel on its head and have companies submit indicative job offers before the candidate even interviews. So basically, you know, when Twitter is using our platform, they're saying, hey, John Smith, we like you. We want you to join Twitter. And, you know, if we go on a quote-unquote date and we both like each other and see that this is a good fit, this is how much we'll pay you. Um, and engineers get all this information up front without having to do any interviews, um, without having to talk to 15 different recruiters. Uh, so it's a very efficient way for them to discover um, what opportunities are out there, but also to conduct price discovery and find out what their skill set is being valued at um, at any given point in time in the market. I mean, what is happening with developers because, and what I mean by that, the developer market, I mean, we, we've got a, a tech startup in Sydney. Um, I'm constantly speaking to other business owners here that just cannot find developers for the love of money. Um, is it just literally 
um, globally? Is there just a supply and demand problem? Is it just is it a lumpiness in that there's a lot of developers in in Eastern Europe and and uh, India perhaps that sort of you know is it a global phenomenon or are there just geographic sort of peculiarities at the moment? I think there's geographic um, pockets where there's a huge supply demand imbalance and certainly I mean. When you say there's fantastic developers in Eastern Europe, that's absolutely true, but it's very, very difficult and expensive to bring them over to the U.S. Um, and other you know, supply-constrained markets. The other interesting thing that sort of struck me while we've been developing developer option over the past year is just how poor some companies are at recruiting. Um, in some cases, the employers are sort of their own worst enemy. They don't have a culture of hiring. They don't have a sense of urgency and they drop the ball even when fantastic talent is handballed directly to them. Um, that's something I was not expecting. I was expecting that, given that everybody's complaining about the problem, that when talent walks in the door, the company would be decisive and work with a sense of urgency on uh, moving forward. But that's not always been the case, and there's been a huge discrepancy uh, between companies in terms of their ability to successfully close talent I think it shocked me. One of the things that 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 I talk to other business owners, particularly non-pure tech companies, in the in the challenges they have in attracting and retaining developers, is that developers are, are a little bit different to perhaps some other um, do I call them traditional type of stuff, and then they they motivated generally by the challenge of the work and by the meaning in their work as opposed to my, perhaps a little bit more traditional drivers of money and um, you, you know lifestyle and things like that. Um, do, you, do you find that as well? People overlook that aspect of the, the job they offer? Absolutely. That's the number one key thing that engineers look at is, you know, what does the tech stack look like? Who am I going to be working with? Am I going to be learning something new at this job? You know, for data science type roles, it's like how big is the data set? You know, what does the data set represent? Is there you know, some interesting challenges and problems to be solved? I think it's sort of a natural thing that occurs around the two or three year mark. You've come to a company, you've absorbed the technology and the product, and sort of almost becomes a maintenance mode type issue. If the company isn't moving the engineers onto a new, bigger, challenging project and just keeps them you know, creating new features and fixing bugs, and people also sort of yearn for that change and challenge and personal growth. Um, yes, it's absolutely about you know, what they're working on above compensation and all other factors. Yeah, I find a certain type of sort of ultra smart developer is definitely into the R&D sort of bleeding edge side of things, you know, almost like the special forces, I call them, you know, there's a certain type of personality that really wants to work in special forces. And, uh, and there's a certain type of personality that's, you know, in more sort of, uh, um, sort of bread and butter roles. And I think as a CEO, it's important to try spot which one really fits where I think that's part of our role as CEOs. Absolutely. And I think uh, great engineering talent also tends to cluster in groups. So smart engineers, the A-plus players, like to work with others who are of their caliber. And if you put an A-plus player on a C team, they're going to get very frustrated unless they have a natural tendency towards you know, mentorship and they want to take on that sort of project. Um, 
And that's why, you know, Google, for example, if you go get hired at Google, you're going to know that every single person there is incredibly, incredibly smart. Um, and you're not going to be dealing with, you know, fixing bugs that, you know, less experienced people make. Uh, are you from a you from a coding background? I, t I take it an engineering background. No, I'm not actually. <laughs> so you so so you like me? You're a, you're a CEO with a tech bent, but you don't actually cut code. Exactly. My co-founder for Developer Auction is the CTO, and he wrote the minimum viable version of the product, which was basically you know in two sign-up pages, one for employers, one for engineers, and then when we got a critical mass of both. Over another weekend, he built the auction functionality. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I always sort of joke that I'm a frustrated developer. You know, I sort of appear over their over their shoulders sometimes, and it's just they they're the modern day alchemists. But um, um, I, I also don't cut code. Now, now, uh, Matt, you you guys have been funded by quite a uh, impressive range of. Um, of of investors including google ventures i mean what was i mean you know talk to us a little bit about the the, the route between the bootstrapped which i know i believe 99 designs up until relatively recently was bootstrapped and then it took took quite a large round i think it was from excel um, that's right and and you guys seem to have started this one off the bat with some investment yeah so we ran a developer auction um so out of our own pocket for close to a year, essentially. Okay. Yep. Um, but but when we figured that we had a right product market fit and that we had hit on something really big and important, we knew that other competitors would emerge. So the funding was for a couple of different reasons. Number one is it would allow us to move more aggressively and take bigger risks because we had a larger supply of capital. Number two is investors are generally not allowed to invest in competing platforms or technologies. So once they put capital on us, they're by default not allowed to invest in the runner-ups. And number three is that the investors sort of act as our distribution arm. Their portfolio companies are going to be our customers. Right. Um, so between Crosslink, Google Ventures, Sierra, and NEA, we have access to over a thousand different tech startups most of them in San Francisco, New York, Boston, Seattle, and these other major tech centers. And all of those startups are have the same exact problem that we're solving for them. Um, so it was a fantastic pool of customers to tap into relatively easy. So, you know, we're one degree away from uh, a huge number of venture funded companies who are actively recruiting and seeking talent. Was the investment process made a lot easier because of your track record with 99designs and SitePoint? Or was it still, did you still have to uh, walk up and down Sand Hill Road and, and giving pitches? I had to walk up and down Sand Hill Road and give pitches for three months. Um, I yeah, so. I, I don't know if that's an encouraging. Um, thing or discouraging to know that someone who built such a successful company like 99design still has to has, still has to sweat hard to get people to uh, to write a check people think that you know sometimes investment even when the market's hot and there's money slushing around uh, it's 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 always hard to get money no matter no matter you know what the circumstances yeah definitely the you know pedigree of 99designs helped open some doors for us and get us some meetings but at the end of the day we still had to sell the investors on the vision our dedication to this company. So 
um, I, I would say we were more successful than our first time entrepreneur because we knew what we were doing, but it was still, it was definitely still a bit of a slog. <laughs> Now, now, Matt, what, what do you think about the startup scene in Australia? I mean, you seem to, I mean, you're currently in Vancouver, am I correct in saying? That's right. And you've, um, you know, 99designs was out of Melbourne, down the road in, in Australia. I mean, what do you, th- do you think the startup scene is evolving here? Or do you think that if you're really serious about a tech startup, you really should go to one of the tech centers? You've obviously have a bit of a global perspective of it. So what's your take on it? I mean, we ended up opening an office for 99designs in San Francisco, and I think that was a key part of our success. Um, I think it'd be very difficult to build a business out of Australia. There's definitely some fantastic exceptions. You know, Seek is a huge business. You have, uh, you know, Zero, their accounting software firm out of New Zealand, etc. But that is definitely the exception rather than the rule, and there's a lot to be said for being surrounded by other people. Um, we're in the same industry. Um, Australia is very isolated from all the conferences, hackathons, meetups, all the events that happen around the startup community, which I think is a bit of a negative. Though definitely, you know, there's a bit of a scene evolving in Melbourne now, but still quite a ways away from what can be found in New York or SF. You know what I find is an underrated opportunity for tech startups in Sydney and Melbourne is actually leveraging Australia as a destination for developers. I've explored a few times um, bringing some developers over from the States and we were absolutely inundated with people wanting to enjoy the, the lifestyle and safety and security of Australia. Whereas we can't compete with these tech centers in terms of the ecosystems and the conferences, we can actually compete with them in other, in other things that, that they can't change at all. And I'm actually surprised more companies don't take advantage of of that which is much bigger than the industry which is the country itself to this day 99designs has most of its development team based in melbourne and the san francisco office is more focused on marketing and customer service um, with a few exceptions so um it's a lot cheaper to retain and attract talent in melbourne than it is in san francisco and there's something to be said for this sort of dual structure we have all the customer-facing operations and maybe the management of a company in the U.S. and the development team in Melbourne where it's much more cost-effective. But it's a hard thing to pull off. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I'm sure, as, as you know, as a CEO, you, you're looking to free up your headspace, not put things in your headspace. And every, every little new tentacle of operational um, additions or anything adds to headspace so you, you're always trying to simplify things and be smart about things I guess yeah definitely so you currently based I mean is your company um, I mean where, based, where? It off, based in San Francisco with all our engineers in San Francisco for developer auction um, it's a huge price premium but I think it was definitely going to be the right decision for the long term of the business and and you just travel around a lot just just for for investors and customers and and relationships and things like that. Yep, and our, my co-founder, the CTO, lives in San Francisco. Our chief operating officer for Developer Auction lives in San Francisco, so they sort of handle the day-to-day management and the grind. And um, Developer Auction is it going um, according to plan, better or, or more challenging? 
Um, it's been going incredibly well. I've been shocked by the level of traction that we've gotten. Um, in terms of the businesses I've founded, I've had, I can't really think of an experience where we saw such a positive response from the community um, so quickly and so early in the life of the business. I get emails literally every two or three days um, saying, when are you going to do developer auction but for finance? Or when are you going to do developer auction but in London, but in Singapore? When are you going to do developer auction for life sciences or salespeople? So it seems to be a natural pull the market um, has. So, and I've been just, you know, we're less than a year old as a company, and we're already working with Twitter, Groupon, Facebook, OpenTable, working with some really fantastic big brands who are using our platform and seeing good results and good success. Um, it just tells me, you know, how much the market needs what we're developing. Yeah, I think one of the things the internet is fantastic at is making markets more efficient. And I'm pretty intrigued by any, any, any platforms that make the, the market more efficient. Um, do you invest in, are, are you, have you invested in any other companies, involved in any other companies on the board or as an investor or anything like that? Yeah, I'm an advisor to uh, seven different companies. Um, some of the most exciting would include uh, Optimizely for A-B split testing. Yep, I'm aware of They're that. They're going uh, fantastically well. BoostCTR.com, which does the creative optimization layer for advertising. So there's lots of you know, tools and software that will manage your pay-per-click bids, but no one that will actually optimize your ad copy or your Facebook ads and images and text, etc. So what they do. We need that. I'm going to look at that when I get off the call to you. We really need that help with that. <laughs> and equire.com, which is a fantastic um, Chrome plugin that automates data entry for salespeople. I found, you know, data compliance reporting with the salespeople is always difficult having people, you know, enter data into Salesforce while they work out of Outlook or, e or Gmail. So it creates a really poor workflow. So you know, Equire sort of automates all that, saving salespeople hours and hours every week while making sure that every piece of critical data is being entered and reported on accurately. And, um, it's, and that's, it's, you said about seven. So th those are the main ones you're involved with? Yeah, there's seven different companies. So there's just three examples of them. Cool. I'll, I'll look some of those up. Matt Mitch, Mitchkovich, um, thanks very much for joining us. I think uh, I'm going to follow your, your entrepreneurial journey with great interest. And it's good to hear that you still maintain some, uh, well, at least 99 designs remain some, some ties with Australia. I think 99 designs and Atlassian and these real successes really do a lot to, to sort of um, catalyze the industry, which I think still got a lot of potential to, to, to you know, develop further. So um, congrats on all your success and really appreciate your time. And we'll definitely follow um, Developer Auction and um, wish you all the best with it. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. That was Matt Mitchkovich, uh, co-founder of 99designs and his new startup developer auction. Clearly a very measured and smart guy. Definitely, yeah. No, he's got some very interesting ideas. And it's interesting that he 
he worked on 99 designs and and made that so successful and has already moved on to you know his next next project which actually is surprisingly similar the developer auction yeah stuff. he obviously likes that sort of marketplace type of crowdfunding play i mean the one point i think he sort of misunderstood me when i said the developers are similar to the designers and that they they um their core skill is not linked into packaging themselves up and and putting their best their best selves forwards you mm. know um as opposed to like an account manager or a salesperson or a ceo or marketing person where they in, that's inherently part of what they do you know um yeah and also that it's um i mean it's also it's very different sort of work than sort of any kind of profession that's really existed before i mean both both designing and developing it tends to be sort of package type work and it's definitely skill based and some people are gonna you know some people have substantially higher output than 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 other people and sort of comparing all that stuff and and coding for it it's very hard so and it's interesting that both of them i mean the very different approaches obviously 99designs is a it's a competition based approach um you know all the designers are sort of um competing to to win a prize whereas it sounds like his next uh, startup is um is more like companies are competing for developers or something to that mm. effect it's quite interesting yeah very interesting i haven't and heard of that before and of course it's a massive problem for company staff and particularly in a place like san francisco when the times are good mm. as they are now i mean it's it's very cyclical when the times are bad you it, it, it there's a glut that's you know it happened after 2000 there was a glut for quite a while um, a really massive glut um, because it just sort of busted so quickly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But at the moment, it's. I mean, it's. It's. I mean, f- what did he say? Fifteen, fifteen approaches a day. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yowzers. Yeah. I think that must be. Um, yeah. If you, I think recruiters use LinkedIn and all that kind of okay. stuff to sort of mine mine these connections. So, but yeah, if you're getting that kind of volume, you're probably just going to be um, throwing them all, to, all into your spam folder. So. Yeah. Yeah, all these hotspots. I mean, definitely. I mean, even Sydney, it's 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 perpetual. It's a perpetual issue and um, real opportunity for for these countries. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, like Australia, I feel it doesn't capitalize on on bringing smart people into this country as much as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, it's smart people can really impact countries in amazing ways i mean i think the google the google maps guys were they originally australian born weren't they australian the original google maps was yeah they're australian yeah but weren't they australian german or something oh yeah maybe maybe originally from german, swedish german, or yeah, something but, there was some university in australia or yeah something like that yeah. same with um Arialon, who's israeli mm. australian and so so you know these these super smart people can really see it interesting companies projects work it's a real important part of um, yeah definitely yeah. The, the value add to the economy so um but look 99 design is definitely a poster child of of the australian startup scene it's um we need more of them absolutely yeah yeah it's one of the one of the few success stories or serious success stories in australia so yeah it's good yeah doing look, very well look them in atlassian um mm-hmm. are definitely how Atlassian doing these days? You know, I uh, haven't heard much about them for a little while. 
Yeah, they dropped off the radar a little bit. They've got um, their Bitbucket service. Yep. It's a bit of a, I think they're probably one of the largest GitHub competitors. So I think that's currently one of their, their big, big uh, products that's doing quite well. But um, yeah, still ticking along. I'm sure they're growing, growing nicely as always. They also have planned for an IPO. Oh, really? As well. Oh, yep. Interesting. Australian yep. IPO. Also. No, American. American IPO, right. Okay, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I don't... Th- oh, look, I assume, actually. Yeah. I assume it'd be a... a um, Probably, yeah. This market's so much smaller here. So. Uh, do we still use any Atlassian products? Um, we still use Jira occasionally. Um, not very often, but... Yeah, Jira's probably still the main one. That's it? None of the... Um, not not regularly anymore, day to day, no. We probably use other, other tools that are sort of more specialised in certain areas. What did we replace Jira with? Because we used to use Jira quite a lot, didn't we? Um, GitHub, actually, funnily enough. Right. So, yeah. All of our issue tracking and everything goes into GitHub now. works quite well because it's all integrated into the code base. So it just turned out that was a, a neater, easier solution than, um, than Jira. Jira is much more heavy. If you're doing big project management, then it's useful. But if you're doing sort of... Um, smaller team stuff uh you know more iterative more agile than than i definitely find github's a bit better because it's almost just like a task list um with a very nice integration in the code so every time you sort of resolve an issue in in git you can sort of tie it directly into the original uh, issue tracking system and it just all synchronizes together and you can very quickly flick between the code and the issues so it just works works really well and GitHub um, is going gangbusters. I mean, they got a massive round of funding a while back. Mm, they're doing very well. They just um, they just announced they're also doing um, uh, free private repositories for um, students and and uh, educational organizations. Um, so basically, with GitHub, you basically pay. So you can use the service completely free, uh, providing all your data is public. And you only pay if you want to create like a private right. repository. Right. It's quite nice. Well, obviously, companies they want their data to be private, so um, you know that's quite a good hook. But still in the cloud, though. And yeah, yeah. And, Atla- and I know Atlassian claim that one of their benefits is a lot of companies like to have all of this behind their firewalls. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not too sure with Bitbucket whether it is um, whether it is siloed or not. Um, but I think I think that is a cloud service too. Actually, so they're going down that route anyway these days. It's one of these products. GitHub, I think, is one of the um, important services that non-developers struggle to get their head around a little bit. Mm. It's not. It's not particularly complicated. I mean, it's essentially, it's just. It's kind of a. It's kind of a, a directory for your code. Really, it's probably the easiest way to look at it. It's just some an easy way to to manage and look at code. Um, it's really all it is. But I know a lot of um, tech jobs these days, people ask to see your GitHub repository. Yeah, I mean, it has interesting aspects in that sense. I mean, I don't personally use a lot of the public tools, but if you're contributing to a lot of uh, open source uh, projects and you're doing commits and creating issues, that kind of stuff, then it can all sort of be tied to your GitHub identity. So it's almost kind of a, an identity for developers that ties all of their work whether it's their own work, or whether it's work uh, for other projects or other companies, all into one one um, one bucket essentially. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a very cool service. Interesting. Okay, that's I think it's for episode number twenty. Episode twenty one. We're going to be talking about startups in Africa, particularly South Africa. It's um, 
obviously I'm from there, so I've got to uh, keep one eye. And of course, one of the world's most respected entrepreneurs, particularly at the moment, Elon Musk, he gets a great amount of press and he's got a huge amount of respect. I mean, he really is quite an interesting guy. I mean, SpaceX, Tesla, ex-PayPal. I mean, wow, you know, and he's still pretty young. Yeah, very, uh, very cool guy. Already had two wives. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing well. He's doing so he's well. got a capacity. I think he's got four kids. So look, I know he's just one of these people that's just got you know capacity to 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 deal with things. Anyway, so you know Elon Musk is from South Africa, and um, there's there's quite a few other interesting entrepreneurs. But you know it's a it's an interesting country that's very um, you know comfortable with risk. You know these countries like Israel and South Africa, where where uh, they they inherently a more complicated life. You actually grow up with a with a greater propensity for risk, which is actually what you need as an entrepreneur. You need to have a bit of a, a sense and feel for it. Australia is just such a wonderfully stable, solid state company that I think I think it's harder for people to. To, to stretch themselves in that way. So we'll be talking to um, one of the incubators that got f f funding from Google, actually, and what they're doing about, um, you know, helping sort of catalyze all the tech startups and what's going on with the tech startups. And, um, and apparently, um, interesting that Amazon AWS services um, was actually created in Cape Town, South Africa. And we'll be finding cool. out cool. a little bit more about that by cool. some South Africans that used to work for Microsoft and there was a whole connection and they've built a cloud service that's now got bought by, I don't know if it's um, Amazon or by Cisco or something. But anyway, there's, there's quite a few connections to Africa. So we'll be talking about that in the next episode and um, that will be episode number 21. So stay tuned, follow us on Twitter, send us tweets. And wherever you are in the world, um, hope you are having a good one. So it's goodbye from uh, Kevin and James.